Praise God. Hallelujah. Welcome to another Power Sunday. Our Power Sundays usually mean so many different things because there are so many dimensions to the power of God. You can't exactly put God in a box. You can't try to predict what he wants to do or how he is going to do what he, he wants to do. So even as we listen today, I want us to open our hearts to God. Father, I pray for your children today. Last week, we learned about the sower and the seed. We learned about the interaction between your word and your children. But I pray today that the lessons from that message will ring strong in your hearts in Jesus' name. The devil would not steal anything away from them today in Jesus' name. You would give them the grace to meditate, to spend time on what they are going to listen to today in Jesus' name. And you, O oh Lord, receive the praise. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Can we open our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 13? The last time we met, like I said, we spoke about the parable of the sower. And what we are looking at as a series is what we've titled Lessons on the Kingdom. And last week we talked about why it's important for us to learn about this kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We talked about how a kingdom is always made up of three elements. It's made up of a king or a ruler. It's made up of people. And it's made up of a place. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom. He's the ruler. The location of this kingdom is both on he in heaven and on earth. But the kingdom on earth is still to come. Which is why Jesus prayed. And he was teaching his disciples to pray. One of the things he said was, That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a time is coming when once again, like it was in the beginning, heaven and earth will be in sync. It will just be different dimensions of the same government. That time is coming. We're not there yet. But the kingdom is also made up of people. People that live by a particular standard and live by a particular creed. People that define their lives by what is the structure or the makeup of their kingdom. So I give the examples of ambassadors. I give the examples of people who live in other places, Nigerians in this diaspora, and how no matter what, they would find a way to associate with their roots. So there are African stores everywhere. There are Nigerian restaurants everywhere across the world filled with who? Nigerians. Why? Because no matter how good life is for them there, no matter what is happening, there's always a consciousness that this is not my home. That's just what the kingdom is. That's the nature of kingdoms. This is not my home. And Jesus started to teach his disciples some lessons to also instill this in them so they don't get too comfortable and think that the state that this world is currently is their home. So in the first lesson, we looked at the relationship between the children of God, that's us, and the word of God, right? Today, we're going to be looking at the relationship between the children of God and the world. The world. And to look at that relationship, we'll be looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
and also the parable of the mustard seed and the living. So we're looking at Matthew 13 from verse 24 to 43. It's a little long, but we'll focus on the things we have to focus on and we'll leave this place. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tars among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared tars also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tars? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather them up? Verse 29. But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tars, ye root up also the wheat with them. And he said, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tars, and bind them up in bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. 31. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable he spake unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of a meal, till the whole was leavened. All these things Jesus spake unto the multitude in parables, and with par- without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tars of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, that's he himself. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tars are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And therefore the tars are gathered up and burned in fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall set forth his angels, and he shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him, what? Let him hear. Amen. Once again, we see that Jesus did not interpret the parable for everybody. Which is why I said, parables are both to reveal and to to conceal. So I said last week, this message is for a select people. So people that are already in the house. People that are already a part of the kingdom. And for those outside. So he was speaking to those who he knew were following him. And by virtue of the sacrifice that he was going to make, we're going to be the first fruits of that new kingdom. 
So when he had finished talking to them in the multitude, the Bible says that he sent the multitude away. And the disciples came to meet him and asked him, declare unto us the parable of the tithes. And he did. He gave them the interpretation. In the same way, he gave them the interpretation of the parable of the sower. But today, I'm not going to give you a step-by-step. The field means the world. The sower of the good seed is the son of man. Because we already have that here, right? What I'm going to give you instead are some characteristics of tars. And I would use that to let you understand what our relationship with the world will be. And it's not a choice. It's not, I'm not telling you it might be, it will be. The first thing is that the tars, they compete with the wheat for nutrients because they are in the same soil. They look like the wheat. In fact, what they look like the most is something called cheat grass. Basically, they look like wheat, except for slight coloration differences and the fact that the grains are a lot smaller than the grains of the wheat. That's the difference. But on the external, on the first glance, if you're not looking extremely clearly, and if you are not a farmer, you might think sometimes that they are the same thing. But what they do is they compete with the same nutrients that the wheat competes with. And it's not just that. It's the fact that there are some weather conditions that favor the tars, while there are some weather conditions that favor the wheat. So usually when the conditions are cold and wet, and there is winter, the wheat usually suffers. But that is the best weather for tars to grow. Strange, isn't it? That's the best weather. That's when they grow. That's when they thrive. But when there's good weather, when there's sunlight, that's when the wheat can thrive. And that's usually when the tars suffer a bit. So when the weather is moderate, it really depends on which fruit is the most on that, or rather which plant is the most on that soil. Why am I giving you this as a characteristic. It's because the first thing we need to know about our relationship with the world is this. In the life of a believer, the systems of this world cannot favor you. There would always be ebbs and flows. There will be times when things will be good for the believer. There would also be times when the weather, and the weather represents the systems of this world, the policies, the things that control and govern the soil, which Jesus has said what is the world. 
there will be times when these things will not favor the wheat, but it would favor who? The tars. And you have to accept that. The reason why it is so is simple. The only time in this world when righteous government, we can say ruled completely, in the history of the world, was at the beginning when it was just God and Adam and Eve before the fall. After that point in time, the weather has been determined by the state and the policies of this world. And if you look at Israel and use Israel as a parallel for the world, you will see it very clearly. That when they had good leaders, not good by human standard, but leaders that feared God, the kingdom prospered because the policies that were in place, the systems that were ruling that particular kingdom were favorable for those who also what? Who also wanted to serve Jehovah. So you would see that Josiah became king and what did he do? Hezekiah became king and what did they do? They gathered all the idols and they went to burn them all. They destroyed them all. What does that mean? It means that in that dispensation, those people whose hearts were yearning for the true God, they had peace, they had good, they enjoyed because the king was good. Ever since man took away rulership of himself from God, man has been prone to fluctuations. And that's why Samuel was so grieved when they asked for a king. Remember Samuel was grieved? The reason he was grieved is because Samuel as a prophet knew what was going to happen. And God said, they didn't reject you, they rejected me, don't worry. They would reap the consequences of displacing me as their king and putting in an earthly king instead. And from the days of Saul down to the end of that kingship rule of Israel, Israel experienced fluctuations. When Samuel was a good king, when Saul was good, Israel was good. When Saul fell, Israel ran into problem. When God raised David up, the periods when David was good, the kingdom was good. It's few times that David made some mistakes, Israel also paid a price. Then you move to Solomon. Solomon, the land prospered under him when he served his God. They were the richest in the world. There was no nation like Israel. And what did Solomon do? He compromised his worship. He started to build altars for other gods. And God crumbled the kingdom, divided it into two. And you move on like that and you continue. When I talk to Christians about government, and I talk to Christians about, about even Nigeria, what Nigeria needs it's not a good precedent by the standards of diplomacy or policy. What Nigeria needs is a ruler that fears God. Not a religious ruler that goes to church. Not a, not a leader that makes appearances that would go to a camp here and a camp there. Because they all do it. It's a political move. <laughs> Everyone, whether no matter what the religion, they'll go to camp, they'll go this, they'll go and meet the, the major players. That's not what this country needs. And I'm not just talking about this country. I'm talking about the entire world. Every nation in this world is in the position that they are in 
because they rejected God. In one form or the other. And that is how it has always been. But the point I'm making is this. How that affects you as a believer is that there are times when the weather will be wet and cold. And it is more favorable for the towers than you. In our society today, we live in such a time that if you have not joined something, if you have not compromised your worship in some way, if you are not doing something dubious, if you have not shed blood, the system cannot be favorable for you because those are the people that things seem to be working for. And as a believer, you have to accept that that is one of the consequences of your interaction with the world as one of God's wit. Because you are not Tars, right? The second thing that I want to mention about Tars is this. So because the grains of the Tars are smaller, like I mentioned, and they are lighter, it's so much easier for them to spread. So they reproduce a lot faster than what? Than the wheat. Because the birds of the air, they come and they basically help the pollination process. They are so small that even ants, some soldier ants, can carry them. So what happens is this. The towers spread a lot faster than the wheat. And what does that tell you? Unrighteousness would always take root in any place or any society quicker than righteousness. In whatever clime or whatever place you operate in, if your immediate circle is your family or your immediate circle is your office and you have a leading to shine that light of God everywhere you go, which you should, you must accept that if God is to truly use you in that place to spread his own light, it will take time. You can't be impatient about it because the truth is unrighteousness spreads a lot quicker than righteousness. A lot quicker. It's fast. It's fast. It's so easy to jump on because there are always new things to do. There are always new ways to express in quote ourselves and to conform with this world. It spreads a lot quicker. It spreads a lot quicker. It shouldn't surprise you or discourage you. It's also something you should what? Accept. And that's what I'm talking about our relationship with what? With the world. A Christian cannot afford to be disappointed that he's the only person that is saved in his family. Can't. Can't afford to be disappointed that in your office you're probably the only one that doesn't go for something. Everybody else goes. Shouldn't make you feel bad. <laughs> because if it does, the question is okay, do you want to join them? <laughs> because trust me, it's a lot easier for you to join them for, than for you to get even one of them over to your side. Just one. It's work, it takes time. It will take you in the place of prayer. And it will take patience. 
Because it spreads a lot faster. That's another characteristic of what of the tides. The third that I want to mention is that it is bitter to taste. The grains are bitter to taste. Whether it's eaten separately or it's mistakenly harvested along with the wheat. Because, and that's why there has to be carefulness in the harvesting process. So when we say that when we say that parables are earthly stories re- reflecting spiritual principles, Jesus was not saying something that they could not relate with here. Because here's the thing, if they harvest the wheat and even some of the grains of the tars mixing with it and they grind it, the bread is going to be bitter. And it's not just that the bread will be bitter, it causes dizziness, it's poisonous. Before I go into that second point, I want to focus on the bitterness. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 7, 16 to 20. Just want to read that briefly. Matthew 7, 16 to 20 says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. The men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruits, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil tree, fruits. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruits, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruits. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. What this should tell us, right, is that as believers, we can never afford to base our relationships and base our interactions on external appearances of piety. Because like I said, on the first glance, the tars and the wheat look, they look alike. The ultimate test of whether or not if you want to be very sure that this is wheat or this is tar, is what? Take the seed, take the grain, taste it. And then if it's bitter, you will know that you're not holding wheat. Our relationships and our interaction with the world cannot be based on external appearances of religion. You have to be able to discern people based on the fruits that they bear. One of the things I, 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 I tell new, when I say new believers, I mean young believers, um, that if someone is talking to me for any form of advice, and by just talking, the first thing I tell them is that when you're looking for a church, prayerfully search. Don't just enter anywhere. And I said number two, when you're looking, avoid as much as possible looking for Christian relationships. What I mean by that is someone just gives their life to Christ and they're excited and everything. And like they are desperately looking for another Christian friend. 
I'm really going like. That's like the worst thing you can do. Because there are so many tars disguised as it. And you don't know enough about them. Because it's all fake. Because social media ultimately is perception. It's perception. And you cannot base interactions based on perception. You don't know where the person sleeps at night and how the person communicates with God. It is very, very difficult. It takes time to be able to discern fruits from somebody's life. And until such a thing occurs, don't commit yourself to such a relationship. Most genuine Christians have had their Christian lives derailed by association. And the associations that derail Christian lives the most, it's not the association with those that are clearly not believers. Because that one, they know where those people stand. So they know how to interact. The association that would derail a Christian the most is usually the association with another Christian. That's the most dangerous one. So I'm, I'm more wary of Christians than unbelievers. I am. When I say Christians, I mean professing Christians. They just they say they are Christian, but I don't know. I can only speak for myself. And probably a few people that have been around me enough that have seen fruits produced in their life. I can't speak for you. So I'm more wary of those kind of relationships. Because I know what it can potentially do to me. Because if you mix it in with my own wheat, everything becomes bitter. It corrupts. But at the very least, if someone says he's not a Christian, I know, okay, this is, I've drawn the boundary of where the relationship ends. I've drawn the boundary on what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. But you see, it's the one that calls himself a Christian that you want to go and share new revelation with. And you want to go and share what God told you. Only for him to tell you, are you sure that God told you that thing? That's not how they, that's not how they teach it in my church. Or I don't think God talks like that. It's only a Christian that can offer you that kind of opinion. An unbeliever won't. You won't even have the conversation with them. Usually unbelievers, because they don't even understand this spiritual thing in the first place, usually when you tell them, they just accept it. Because they don't have any opinion one way or, or the other. It's the believer that can influence you. Because he will tell you he goes to church too. And he also reads his Bible. You cannot afford to base your interaction with this world on external words, external appearances of righteousness or piety. It's not about, oh, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that. There are lots of people that live disciplined lives. It's just their character. They don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't go out, they don't do this. They are not saved. But they don't do those things. Because what? There's a natural discipline that they are brought up in such a way that there's a natural discipline in some things that have been instilled in their lives. That doesn't make them believers. They might be going to church on Sunday. 
You can't base your relationships on external what? External views of piety. The last thing I want to say is that in the end, like I said, tars are strong, they are poisonous. They are poisonous because they can cause dizziness when it's consumed in large quantities. And so before grinding the wheat into flour, what usually happens is that the farmer has to separate it grain by what? Grain by grain. It has to be careful. So the question is, why does God allow this? Some Christians ask some interesting questions like, why doesn't God just like destroy all the <laughs> bad now? Like, why doesn't he just take all the evil away right now? And the answer is simple. Because some time ago, you were also one of the evil <laughs> that he could have taken away. The same way, tomorrow, somebody that was part of the evil today is no more what a part of the evil. It is because of the power of transformation in Jesus that God is holding out his hand and having mercy. If you open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 45, can you open your Bibles there quickly? And this was when Jesus was talking about loving our enemies. And what Jesus said is, that ye may be like the children of your Father in heaven, which maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on both the just and the unjust. So why wouldn't God do anything about the weather? Because of, of his mercy, he's just and he's fair, and he sendeth his rain on both the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on what? On both those who are good and those who are evil. Not because he doesn't know what he's doing, but because God does not want anyone to perish. He wants as many people to come to repentance. And that is why when the servants said, and you know the servants represent the angels, and it's kind of an insight into the kind of conversations that might be happening in heaven. And the servants were like, why don't we just harvest it now? Protect this wheat. Right? But what he said instead is no, hold on. Wait till the end of what? Of the world. Then we will do this. Because God wants as many people as possible to become part of the wheat. And that's the first reason why he wouldn't do it. But you see, the other two parables we're going to look at now. A proof that even while we have to pass through this world in these circumstances, the church will always thrive in adversity. What did I say? The church will always thrive in adversity. I said something on when we had our love feast and I was talking, and people came out here with beautiful, some very some very heartbreaking testimonies about testimonies of the future, actually. 
people who were believing God to heal them in one way or the other because in their lives and their families they've experienced so much brokenness. And I was sitting down here and I went away for a while because I get very emotional when I hear these things. People don't know what I walk about. I don't want to shed any tear in front of you people. So I went away because some of those stories were really deep and painful. Or people who and I was really grateful to God because they couldn't share that in I don't know the churches they go, but it felt like a release for them and we were able to pray with them and everything. Because they don't have that. And I was grateful to God that we did that. When I came out to speak, what the Holy Spirit led me to start with is life is not easy. And it felt like an anticlimactic thing to say because it doesn't feel like it's an encouragement, but it is. If you really listen to it in context. One of the things I ended up saying that day is the church will always thrive in adversity. When I say the church, I don't mean this building. I mean you and me. Whether it's personal adversity or systemic adversity. Personal adversity as to the things that are going on in your life. The pains that you have that you only share with you and God. Or systemic adversity, which we don't experience much of here, but people who are going through constant persecution in different parts of the world because they are Christian. But guess what? The church would always thrive in the face of adversity. That's how it always has been. And the nation of Israel is also like that. Israel can never die. The church also can never die. Why? Because God has two covenants in place that he will never break. He made a physical covenant with the nation of Israel that is still alive till tomorrow, till this world finishes. So let all the nations of the world gang up against Israel. They can't defeat them. But that doesn't mean that Israel will not suffer. They have been suffering. Read through the Bible. They suffered and suffered and suffered. And they are still suffering today. But they will always what? Thrive. And God has another covenant in place with his church through Jesus Christ by his blood in that we will never be defeated. The gates of hell will never prevail against us. But it doesn't mean they won't try. So the church will always thrive in the face of adversity. Whether it's personal or systemic. And that's the reason why even with all the things that he has said on the parables of the towers and the things I've explained to you, nothing kills the wheat. Hmm? Even that bad weather doesn't kill the wheat. It might be more advantageous for the towers for a while, but that does not mean that the wheat dies. And that's why the, the last two parables we're going to look at are a picture of what the church is. And the first is the parable of the mustard seed. And it says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among the herbs, and becometh a tree, so that birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. This has to do with the growth of the church in the face of adversity. That the power of the gospel is such that although it might start off as what? A small seed. That what happens in the life of every believer is that they are going to become 
a place where what? Refuge will be found. And the reason why I call it the greatest herb is because it grows into a tree, but by classification, the mustard is still a herb. It's a herb. And all the other herbs that we have grow in small, small shrubs. The mustard seed is the herb that grows into an actual tree. Even if by botanical classification, it is not a tree. But yes, the seed is what? So small. This is the picture of the church. Both the church as an individual, that's you and I, the local assembly, that's the corporate body, and the universal church, which is the kingdom to come, you're a place of refuge. You're a place of what? Of refuge. The solutions to this world's problems, the true solutions to the problems of the world are in the hands of the church. How many of us believe that? You have to believe it though. Because this world is first spiritual. Everything that happens in the physical is a manifestation of what happens in the spiritual. God is a spirit. The devil is also a spirit. And man is what? A spirit. So what are we saying? And the only people that are truly conscious of it, but are on the side of good, are the believers. Any unbeliever who is conscious of the spiritual realm and has dipped his leg into the spiritual realm is in the kingdom of the devil. So when I say that the solution to the problems of this world are in the hands of believers, it's true. Because you are a spirit and your spirit is actually alive, communicating with the spirit of God. So the church is supposed to be a refuge. A place of solace where the birds will come and rest. But you don't become that in a day. You will become that even through adversity. And God will take you through and you will grow. Though you started like what? Like a mustard seed. That's what the local assembly is supposed to be. A place of refuge. The church is not a company. It's a home. It's a place of refuge for the lost, for the broken, for those who don't have the answers. They're supposed to be able to walk into God's presence and find refuge. Not because of any medical study we've done or any psychology we know or any business acumen we have. It's because we're in connection with God's spirit. And we've been learning about God the Father. He's omniscient. He has all knowledge. There's nothing he doesn't know. Which means there's nothing he cannot solve. And that's why the church is supposed to be a place of refuge. So this is Jesus juxtaposing the way things seem in the world and the advantages that people seem to have Versus who you actually are. So you will experience interesting things through your life. Where those that hate and persecute you are also the ones that come to you for advice. And you have to give them. 
you still keep them, knowing fully well that behind your back, <laughs> they're still the ones that are what? Persecuting and hating you. It's not their fault. Both, not their fault. The first is because they are tired. They don't know Jesus yet. But the second is, you are still the solution provider. There's something in you that they can't explain. And that would always bring them to you. That's the first. That has to do with the external. But the second is also the same, but it has to do with the internal. The second parable is this. And that parable is spake unto them. The kingdom of heaven is also unto the living, which a woman took and hid in three measures of a meal till the whole was living. This also has to do with growth. But this has to do with the growth of God's kingdom through his word within you. Because it's whatever builds up inside you that shows that's outside. And you should never underestimate the power of God's word. Never underestimate it. Never look down on it. I was sharing something with, with someone lately. And I, I, I've shared it with two people actually. And I was talking about how one of the biggest problems that God helped me to deal with over the last two years is classifying the Bible in such a way that I see some parts as more sp- spiritual than others. And there's a, that's a tendency that Christians have. So you see, when you're reading through those stories, you don't ask the Holy Spirit to teach you anything. You don't depend on him for anything because it's just it's a story. But when you want to read Paul's letters, you're like, yes, this is the spiritual part of the Bible. That has things. Is that what God told you? <laughs> Who divided it like that for you? It's you. And some biases that we've carried over the years. And God started to break that in my life. Don't underestimate the power of the word of God. Any part of it. Recently, I've been studying judges or reading through judges. And the amount of lessons I've learned. Because I just told the Holy Spirit, just show me what you want to show me inside this thing. And the amount of things he has taught me from story of people killing each other. Because that's the summary of the book. But the amount of things that he has brought out for me, spiritual lessons that I'm holding on to for my life. You can't underestimate this word. Every time you pick it up, it's a privilege that you have it. There are places where they are seeking it. There are places in this world where they are not even seeking the whole Bible. They just want some pages to read. They've given their lives to Jesus. But they don't have access because they are going through systemic what? Adversity. And they just want a few pages. And whether what they get is the book of Corinthians or the book of Ruth, it doesn't matter to them. They just want a few pages. Whether it's the book of Esther or the book of Revelations, it doesn't matter to them. They don't underestimate any of it because they don't have it. And the lesson that God will teach them from Esther, he will still teach you from Matthew. It's the same Holy Spirit. Hmm? So that's what that second part is saying. Don't underestimate the word 
He said she hid it in three measures. And it grew till it became what? It filled the entire living, the entire bread. Which means the little that you know, if you meditate on it and focus on it, it will carry you through life. It will. It can. Keep taking it in. And keep letting it grow. Don't underestimate it. Don't think there is nothing. Because that's what keeps you alive as wheat. Amen. Amen. So before I leave here, I want to pray for you. And I'll just say a prayer and then I'll go. But the people I want to pray for now are those who, number one, are dealing with any form of personal adversity. I'm not going to call you out though. I'm just going to have you place your hand on your chest. Any form of personal adversity, anything that you're going through that you've not shared, that you've not opened your mouth to talk about, or you might have even spoken about, but you don't have a solution for it yet. The truth is this. The Bible says the afflictions of the righteous are many. But the Lord delivered them all from them all. He said he delivered them from them all. The afflictions of the righteous, they are what? They are many. But the Lord delivered them from them all. These are messages that my parents call our type of Christianity in our generation. They call, they call it chewing gum Christianity or ice cream Christianity. That's not what we are practicing in this fellowship. We will talk about the difficult things. We will also not underestimate the power of God to do anything. That's how Christians should live. So we are not talking about these things because there is no solution. We are talking about it because God can do anything. And we are standing on that in faith. Father my God, I want to thank you for your children. But I worship you for their lives. For those who are lifting their hands on their chest. For those who are admitting, Lord, that they are going through a form of personal adversity, going through a form of struggle in their lives that they cannot share. Lord, today is Power Sunday. And what that means, oh Lord, is that your power is available here for them at all times. Lord, I pray for them in the name of Jesus that they would come through this as victors in the name of Jesus. Give them solutions that they never dreamt of in the name of Jesus. Let them experience your power in ways that they could not have told in Jesus' name. And let them come back to testify of your goodness. Lord, these people will become stronger Christians in the name of Jesus. They will thrive even in this world whose systems and policies are turned against you. Lord, the enemy will not manipulate them in the name of Jesus. Lord, the enemy will not take them away from your side in the name of Jesus. The enemy will not make them resent any of the commitments that they have made to your kingdom in the name of Jesus. The enemy will not be a stumbling block to their growth. The enemy will not be a stumbling block to their victory. The enemy will not stand against them anymore because you have given them the victory in Jesus. You have given them the victory in Jesus. Father Lord, these ones, these ones will stand for you. 
and these ones will experience you in a new dimension that they have not experienced before. By your power and for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, I have prayed. Amen. Let me just thank the Lord and just worship Him. Let's give Him praise for today. Give Him praise for what you know He has done. Give Him praise for what you know that He has wrought in your life. I want you to exalt Him. I want you to magnify His name. For it's in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.